Hello, listening people. What's happening, Skin? Hello, Mr. Skin. How are you doing? No, Not... don't, don't acknowledge it. Don't acknowledge Mr. Skin, the website that helps you look up celebrity nude scenes. Did you know that's a thing? Mm-mm. I'll tell you. I, I would just imagine there are many forums collating that information. No, no, it's a specific <laughs> website. And you know how I found out about this? I don't know if you. You, Ryan Slewinski. Uh, yes, me, Ryan Slewinski, host of Spit and Polish Presents, likingly, because I'm always spitting, and I also happen to be Polish, as do you, Mr. Bartek Skin. Uh, there's the film 40 Old Virgin, and that was a big movie, and I enjoyed it when I saw it back in the day, and then that had a follow up. Well, not a follow up, but like. Judd Apatow's career, and there was Knocked Up. Yeah, I always got those mixed. I've never seen yes. either of them, but I got them mixed up. And I really did not like Knocked Up. I, I, I've i never seen it outside the first time I viewed it, and I really didn't like it. But the one storyline I remember liking was Seth Rogen's character, or his friends, had a career that they were making where they were renting out movies and watching for nude scenes of celebrities and noting them down and making a list, like you're saying. And then somebody broke. Well, like you're saying, but like, yeah. but no, like a forum, like, oh, you, like yes, you were saying. Yes. And then somebody broke to them. Did you know that that's already a thing called Mister Skin? And then they're like, "What do you mean, Mister Skin?" And the guy who said this then proceeded to do a big grin and put his hands next to his face and go, "Mister Skin." And that's because the Mister Skin avatar. Like, the website has a little, like, drawing of a smiling man's face, and he looks like a 1950s advertisement-style artwork. Mm -hmm. And that's how I learned about a valuable website for perverts. And it's one of those things, like, when you see that in a movie, this character in 2000 and whatever watches every movie possible to see if there's a nude scene so he can tally it down. You go, oh, that's actually an interesting idea. And then the movie proceeds to say, yeah, yeah. That's already been done in the real world. There's a website for it. Like, oh, very interesting. But we're not talking about internet history today or a Judd Apatow comedy. Maybe we should fix that. We haven't done one of his on the pod, have we? I don't think so. Um, I don't think we've done Step Brothers or... He wasn't... No, that was Diablo Cody. Yes, that was... Yeah, were you going to think Juno was one of his? I'm trying to remember which ones of his I've seen. Oh, uh, yeah, but there's Anchorman, right? That's... I can't remember, I've but here's his style. But we I are, feel like we have done something. We are doing a movie that came recommended from one of us, because in our show we have a cycle of recommendation where it goes from Bartek to me and then to the listening people. That's right. You can suggest to us a movie to do on the podcast. We put it in a list and we eventually get round to it. And as I as I'm speaking right now, the list is actually pretty small. We're only in the single digits right now of recommendations. It's actually been quite a, a time because... Yeah, it's true. When Ryan said single digits, he held up a finger. One fingy, uh, to demonstrate my point. But we are going to discuss today a film I recommended, a Japanese animated film called Ghost in the Shell, quite a well-known film. It has a legacy and a reputation that precedes it. Even if you haven't seen it, there's things about it that you probably know. The font choice even is at this point recognizable and synonymous with it. But if you are one of those people that hasn't had the chance to watch Ghost in the Shell, Bartek, how would you how would you pitch this to somebody? If somebody came up to you and said, oh Bartek, I haven't seen Ghost in the Shell, 
Uh, well, what's it about? Well, should I watch it? What would you say to them? Uh, Ghost in the Shell. So it's a 1995 uh, animated film uh, that is an adaptation of a manga with the same name. Uh, and it is an iconic 90s anime Japan animation film uh, that deals with uh, ideas of transhumanism, uh, people becoming more technologically, you know, biological, mm. um, and the questions that that brings up about, you know, whether they're human or not. Um, it's set in a cyberpunk setting, and it inspired many uh upcoming science fiction related works like the matrix and things like that ghost in the shell is also a cop procedural story set in a fantastical cyberpunk setting when you look at the plot of it itself it is here is a case to be solved but then it spirals into a bigger larger conspiracy that challenges the central theme that you just went over of that transhumanism and our main character is a cybernetic being and they have philosophical angst and dread about if they are or are are not a human being and the case that they on that they're on challenges them throughout it. So we are going to get into full details and spoilers and all of it now. If you have not seen Ghost in the Shell, the original Japanese film, recommend that you give it a watch at uh, for yourself. It's it's short, it's sweet, but it's to the point. Now, history and relationship-wise, I've seen this before. This is one of those early Japanese uh, animated films I had seen in my in my life. There was a time in which, growing up, anime, TV, and film was just a given for entertainment in my youth. Uh, we were actually discussing before we recorded stuff like Pokemon and Digimon and Dragon Ball. And there used to be a show on here, a morning show called Cheese TV, in which you had some hosts and they would have their little segments in between and then they would play these cartoons. And it was just a given that uh, Japanese animation was just what uh, a seven-year-old boy was watching in the early 2000s or like in the... Yeah, and and it was just a gateway with it came when it came to TV to check out movies at some point. And the difference, the difference with Ghost in the Shell was it was the first one of the first movies from Japan that was animated that I had seen, and it was also I think probably the first anime that I had watched in Japanese. Mm, okay, growing up. Dragon Ball and Pokemon and Digimon, Yu-Gi-Oh! They were all in English because it's a you know, morning, weekday, kids about to go to school, then they're going to play the Japanese with subtitles. So, uh, yeah, I, I vividly recall seeing this as one of my first in Japanese with subtitles mm-hmm. uh, things. So I don't know if you have any kind of recollection of something like that for you when it comes to shows or movies, but for me, it was just such a vivid thing having grown up with all of these shows where you know that they're dubbed from Japanese, but that's what you watch. And I wasn't going to get them on videotape and check out. I wasn't that much of a nerdy kid, so I just took them and watched them once and had probably never seen them again. It's interesting the generation we grew up in where – a lot of those, uh, you know, shonen shows that are targeted for our age demographic were just available 
uh, on TV. Obviously, you know, we have to wait for the next episode to come out the next day or the next week. Um, but also in our generation, you know, we have online content creators who tend to be like 10 years older than us who recount their own experiences growing up uh, with anime. And there's all this talk about like, oh, yeah, uh, importing the DVDs, the people doing the fan subs on the DVDs, mm. uh, exchanging them around the university anime club, things like that. How pricey they are. How pricey they are. Or I can't remember if those were necessary. They might have been. That's something I always hear about with collecting anime film and TV back in the day. It was a costly endeavor yeah. for people. Hence the distribution of sharing and like a lot of iconic anime that they talk about in their generations would be like the films like this one. Or Akira. Or Akira. I hear a lot about Ninja Scroll. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, even a lot of ones that are more raunchy that get brought up a lot like Golden Boy. Like there's an anime reviewer who uh, used to be on That Guy with the Glasses, uh, Bennett the Sage. Yes. Uh, he does a show called Anime Abandon. And I watched the first couple dozen way back in the day. And yeah, they were just going over all the stuff from this era. I even checked out the Ghost in the Shell one just last night just to refresh myself. Nice. So Ghost in the Shell, what has been your relationship with this film? Uh, it's one that I'd always heard about, but hadn't seen growing up. Um, this sort of uh, relates to a, a sort of history that I brought up way back in, surprise, surprise, the mystery box when we talked about Urotsuki Doji. I talked about how I had fairly recently, as of starting university, been going to a lot of cash converters. Mm. And generally, if I saw something anime there, because I didn't really own much, I would just buy it whether it was interesting or not, just because it was really cheap and I wanted to own some stuff. And I remember not only was Ghost in the Shell special edition, like this film, uh, the first anime thing that I bought there, I think it might have been like the second overall thing I ever bought from Cash mm. Converters, the first being Screwballs, of a, a movie that I've watched. We've all, we all loved Screwballs. We all love Screwballs. It's has tennis, tennis the, racket. has one of the best end credit scenes ever. <laughs> Plays the national anthem, but there's extra stuff. Yes, I salute <laughs> in my pants. Yep. And there's a joke only I got when we watched it as a group with the guy in a gimp mask, but mm. that's a story for another time. Yeah. How does it from it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, uh, the funny thing is that I think Ghost in the Shell, of all that, the few anime stuff I bought, is the only thing I've actually watched from that little collection. Mm. Um, yeah, I watched it with my stepbrother. Because we were just hanging out, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll put something. Oh, I hear this is good, but it was a little too heavy, I think, just for, you know, a casual watching while we're hanging out chatting. <laughs> it's a slow burn. So, hence, last week when I brought it up, I was like, oh, yeah, I need to give it another chance. Like, you brought up the whole thing about, like, oh, you've never seen it before. This is your chance. And if you've never revisited, this is your chance. I'm like, yes, this is my chance. This is your chance. You better not waste it. Ghost in the Shell, I feel for some people is a bit of uh it, it can be challenging to watch because it has such a reputation before it mm. and i would say you know as someone who weirdly enough has more experience with japanese animated films than you do but i would yes. say that you're more of the weeb and more of the anime fan than i am you've watched more shows you've played more japanese games you know a lot more terms yeah. and lingo and cultural stuff than i do so i'll just call myself the layman here for instance but 
Ghost That's in the fair. Shell is one where it's like even I knew what Ghost in the Shell was before having seen it. While something like, say, Akira, which has a very big uh, reputation as well, I didn't know about that until uh, a friend of ours made me watch it. And I just was like, okay, I'm up for it. And obviously when I had seen it, I, I recognized some of the visuals has have been repeated in Akira, but I didn't know anything about Akira. But Ghost in the Shell just has had such a, a, a commercial hit as well uh you know domestically and obviously foreign wise like it was one that from doing a bit of looking it, it definitely gained popularity when it came out on videotape yeah. and it was in the Home mid- media it was in the mid 90s where at that time I, and i think we've talked about this a bit before but and even just earlier but entertainment from japan was reaching out farther in that point especially in the 90s where you had the the TV shows and all of like the those morning shows playing anime shows and and presenting movies and people just getting more and more interested and I think the stigma of Japanese Japanese media and animated properties had started to go away from your creepy weird sex pervert hentai whatever fun fact at the end of that bennett the sage review of ghost in the shell he's like and next time we're talking about something a little more raunchy and he shows his copy of legend of the Overfiend. there we go and did he talk about it it was literally the next episode on the playlist yeah <laughs> so we should do the third one <laughs> uh, listeners pick is the third legend of the third one legend of the third one but ghost in the shell i i i know some people who haven't checked it out because it just feels too daunting. And I know that sensation. There's many movies that I've had that with where, uh, do I really want to watch Citizen Kane? It probably won't be as good now that everyone's told me it's good, but I've watched Citizen Kane and I enjoy it. But Ghost in the Shell, I, I haven't revisited it in a little while. So watching it again last night, it was really interesting to pick up on things differently. When I was a teenager watching it, I kind of got absorbed in the spectacle of it all rather than the ambiance of it all. And that was what was really arresting to me this time was the dread that was there, that this was a downer of a movie, that it was, even though it's less than 80 minutes long, it feels long because of just how deliberately paced everything is and the music and how it uses that, and the minimal amount of dialogue that's actually here as well. There's just long stretches of just the animations telling the story on its own. This is one where I could argue you could watch a good portion of it without the sound on and pick up what's going on, mm. but I, I I really enjoyed revisiting it. So, Bartek, how was watching Ghost in the Shell properly this time? Yeah. Um, mixed feelings on it, but with what you were saying about the ambience, yeah, absolutely. That was my favorite part of the film, just vibing with it, I guess, in all the quiet moments. Um, even though I didn't have the proper viewing experience the first time, there were all these visual elements that, you know, always stuck with me. Like whenever I thought about Ghost in the Shell, it's like, oh, I can't remember everything about it, but I remember this moment and this moment, like seeing, um... Bato, is it Bato or Gato? Bato. But seeing Bato in, almost felt like I was going to say my name, seeing him in the marketplace where he's just this big guy, everyone else is shorter than him and he's got those round eyes mm. just looking around like there's a little bit of shading on him because of the location and just remembering that scene, um, remembering the abandoned building in the climax with the giant spider tank. I remember that it was a tank, forgot that it was a spider tank, so that was cool. <laughs> 
Um, Fell right out of Metal Gear. Solid. Yeah, yeah. There, there's some that are spidery, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the not the opening scene, but the scene where Motoko is being uh, put together. Mm. Just a lot of these visual elements that yeah really gripped me. So uh, one of the aspects that I just really want to dive into is those visuals, since we're on the topic right now. I really love this era for character designs and the color palette of anime in the 90s just really is something that I gravitate towards. It's maybe a nostalgia, but we've been watching some recent stuff, you and I, we, you know, we we went over Little Witch Academia in our spare time and everything feels to me so clean and digital and bright. Mm. And I miss this type of uh, animation where there's a bit of a grit to it. There's, you know, there's even a bit of a, a feeling like this is shot on film, even though it's an animated thing. You know, there's just something even, grimy even, to it. Uh, even beyond that, like even character designs are just a little bit different, you know, before... I guess the mid two thousands. We actually have discussed this with uh, Satoshi Khan's movies, right? Mm-hmm. Where when we watched Perfect Blue, I I said like, or at least I indicated like this era, this style of animation, these character designs, the grit, the feel is what I prefer. Even though his movies after that all look gorgeous, but you even see in his filmography like that change happens. Mm. And yeah, when we were talking just before, I was looking at your shelf and I saw your copy of Paprika. Yeah, and it's really bright and colorful, and that's all good too. And those are gorgeous looking movies, but this nineteen nineties look. Just the way that the characters, uh, you just see them and you know everything you need to know about who they are from the way they're drawn. Mm. Uh, you, you said it, but like Bato, he, he, those eyes, that haircut, the jacket is, is real great for me. That, that, that's just one of the things where I just yeah. go, yeah, I know exactly who you are because of what you're wearing as well as how you're drawn. And their, their chief, their old boss guy with the glasses, <laughs> and he just he has this shape with his head and his hair that kind of juts out where you can tell he's the pissed off old guy. Like you can just... He looks like a nineties anime scientist. Yeah, but he isn't. <laughs> but I love him and I just have a real affinity towards that. I mean, how do you feel about just the look of the film when it comes to the actual animation, those character designs, color? So obviously growing up, Pokemon was a big one. Um, There were a lot of more older 90s stuff on TV. Like I remember Pokemon and Cardcaptor Sakura were the big ones for me. Um, And then moving on, you know, you, you get into the 2000s. And then when I... Uh, finally started getting into anime proper. I think previously on the podcast, I've described it as when I became a weeb. I think it might have been in the Prisoner of Azkaban episode I said that. He's a weeb, guys. Um, uh, I was seeing a lot of stuff mainly from, yeah, the 2000s to modern day at the time. Um, And it was only really in recent years that I've started watching things that are a little bit older, like from the 90s and 80s. And hell, when I watched Lupin Part 1, that was like 1969. Oh, there you go. Um, And obviously last year, I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, I've gotten into Gundam, even though I'm not big on giant robots, I just really seem to like it. Um, And I did start from the beginning, and I've seen all the stuff from the 20th century, and I was just seeing the you know, the art style evolve. And I think I literally said in the Paprika episode that I was 
partway into Zeta Gundam, which is the second show from like 1986. And I was really into all the character designs. And then I watched Paprika for the podcast. I was like, wow, this is, you know, gorgeous modern. I went back to Zeta Gundam. I'm like, oh, okay. I can see now how it's slightly aged. It still looks gorgeous, but you can really tell the evolution when you intersperse Paprika into the middle of it. Um, And yeah, I've just really enjoyed seeing this, you know, even though for everyone, this is the older style, it's something a bit more different for me. And there are, yeah, there's a, you mentioned that we've been watching a lot of anime on the side and I'm uh, campaigning for one late nineties show Mm. uh, that we might watch next. And there's another one that I've mentioned a few times before. And our friend Will, who we're seeing tomorrow has a Blu-ray copy of this which I think would pair up pretty well with Ghost in the Shell called Serial Experiments Lane. It's from a few years after this. It's like 13 episodes long. And it also deals with some slightly transhumanist stuff. It's a very weird, heavy 90s sci-fi anime that deals more with the emerging trends of the internet. One of the visuals that everyone remembers is her creation, our main character coming out of the water, the goo, getting the skin, that breaking off and revealing, you know, her more organic look, the the nipples and the hair is there, all of that. And everyone remembers that sequence. And if you ever go to the comment sections on any videos about Ghost in the Shell, everyone talks about like the gorgeous animation there. And it is, it's really well done. It's one, what, one of the things I remember, there's, there's key sequences that you will never forget, such as her stripping down and jumping out off a building backwards or her fighting a person invisible in a body of water. And that guy's like shooting around and you see the foot, jumps through the thing. There's so many like that. But what I actually was really blown away by was after the opening sequence happens, we're in her bedroom and it's really dark and she's just on the bed and we have like the sudden abrupt cuts to other things with that with that music sting and we cut away to like the helicopter landing and these ministers coming down we just keep cutting away now we're here in a car as they're driving to work and we cut away again and just how those were used because each one of them visually had a different sense of momentum to it so when we're with her in her bedroom it's really ominous and quiet contemplative but then we cut to like a helicopter landing there's action in it like action in terms of like visually you've got a lot to process and now we're meeting new characters who are all business and they're walk and they're doing the walk and talk and they're in and then you have the cut to that now these two guys are now these guys are in the lift and they're going you know they're going through the lift and they're having this back and forth conversation and now we're having multiple cuts in between lines of dialogue and then we cut back to now on an aerial shot of like traffic and I was just really blown away by how it got you into the world and to the narrative through a different demonstration of animation like of of how scene constructions can be just one after the other just bam 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 even though this has a very slow, methodical tone, ambience, and pace. When you actually look at the beginning, after you have like the action set piece and her being, you know, quote unquote, born. Uh, once you go past that, it actually just really 
just puts its foot on the pedal and just keeps going for quite a while, and then it eventually slows down when she gets to the crime scene, or like that scene where they're explaining to her about the the puppet master, Mm. and they have that lady open and the brain and all of that. That's when it slows down. But before then, it was just like really, really smacking you with just so much visual material. I was just really blown away by that and just soaking it in because in my recall of Ghost in the Shell, I remember this being an action-packed fun Hmm. adventure with musings of what it is to be human. But the stuff I remember is the kicking and the fighting and the flipping and the tank and the guns. But Yeah, for me, since it's been about... You know, ten or nine years since I watched it, I do recall. I've already mentioned like the big things that I recall, but they were a bit more actiony, visual based. And then there was like the vague memory of like there was some sort of like deeper thought provoking thing, but I couldn't quite remember what it was. Um, I would remember that it was like a transhumanist thing because I remembered the you know the opening scene, but I didn't remember the details of it. Um, so yes, I was interested to see like, oh, how is it balanced? Cause I do remember there was this element and this element and there was a decent balance of it. You had the action, you had the more thought provoking stuff. Like I didn't remember the like scene of, uh, Motoko Kusanagi and Bato on the boat at all or anything oh, like that. That's one of the ones I remember, baby. <laughs> but Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel reviewed Ghost in the Shell. I didn't know that. I, I thought maybe they uh, would have. But I might I watched, have heard that Ebert did. I watched their review of it, and they touched upon the most interesting thing at the very end, but it was in a throwaway, oh, isn't this interesting, now we're wrapping up, which is how Japan, you know, remember this is them in 1995 talking about it, but a lot of their movies had female protagonists, female badass leads. Just there was a series of them, and they just offhandedly said it's interesting that in Japan they have a very progressive view of women in that narrative sense of like we can have the lady with the gun and the jacket doing the flips, but then that they also sexualize her. And I think Ebert said there's just a interesting. There's an interesting discourse to be had about that. And then they wrapped up the review. I'm like, no, go back to that. That's why it's an interesting part of the review thus far. And I just wanted to... like, yeah, that, she's my wife. I just want to go over that because I've been flippant on the podcast sometimes when it comes to animation from Japan about how it can be weird and pervy and I'll remind I'll, I'll remind gross. everyone that when I recommended Tokyo Godfathers, that was the big thing for like the entirety of the wait till we did that episode of like, oh, Bartek recommended a Japanese thing. It's going to be weird per- and pervy. Well, after Legend of the Demon Womb and <laughs> Overfiend, why fair wouldn't enough, I feel? Fair yeah, enough. fair enough. I don't remember if we did Demon Womb yet, but I we think, definitely did Overfiend. <laughs> I think we may have, but... Uh, there is an aspect that you can critique this movie for. Like, she gets naked and jumps around, and we get shots of her nipples, and they do make sure to show us that she doesn't have a vagina. It's just it's just flat down there. Like, they, they go out of their way to show us her butt and all that stuff. But I, I just want to say, I think that is a part of it. I think that's the, the thing of the movie, and I think it's actually very important that our lead character is a woman. I think that isn't by accident. I don't think that's by mistake, and I don't think they're doing that just for the sake of cool, sexy visual only. Uh, this is a film dealing with what it is to be human and feeling dehumanized, and 
women feel that very much so, especially in this line of work which she's in, which is the cops, basically. And it's a it's a man it's a man's world. We basically only get male characters throughout this, and most of the other female characters are puppets. You, you even have the thing of like, oh, the the puppet master's using this female body but then the voices are man's yeah and it really gives this almost sense of like you know you do see a lot of exposed breasts in the film but in almost all the cases like unless that alone is good enough for you they're they're just being treated sort of like oh this is a machine in front of you and they're objectified because they are literally objects yeah our main character that's her entire worry is am i real Am I a real person? Because this body isn't mine. It's a built thing. This is owned by the corporations. I People pay for this. People repair this. I have my brain, but where did that come from? And does that make me me? And she's an object, and the movie objectifies her, but not because it's just wanting to be sleazy, but I think it just goes in line with the overall messaging that there's a dehumanizing factor to the society that this takes place in, and maybe bonk, bonk on the head for you, the viewer, maybe in our world too. Yeah, yeah, Have you ever thought about that? In the climax, like she, when she goes to rip off the plate on the big spider tank, you know, she suddenly gets really jacked and it's like, oh, this is something the body can do. Mm-hmm. And then she's pulling on it, like the arms break off and you see the mechanisms in there and it really just drives the point home. Like, hey, look, it's not a... You know, flesh and blood woman here. And the fact that her femininity and her sexuality is, it is a story. It is a part of the story. It is a part of the story. I think actually does help strengthen her as a strong female character because it is inherently within the narrative, the theme. While, say, you could argue here in the West, we have our strong female leads played by Scarlett Johansson, who obviously played this character in the uh, remake, but we have her yeah. in, say, the Avengers, and it's like, oh, isn't she fun? But they they inherently objectify and sexualize her, and it's like her attack move is she squeezes her thighs around their face, and but it's never a part of the story or theme that they're objectifying her. So it is just doing that. But there's this weird sense here in the West, like, we don't do it as overtly pervy as the Japanese, so somehow we're not gross, but... <laughs> we I don't see... do it as overtly per- pervy. Also, we don't do her movie until after the Endgame movie. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know, sometimes I find, like, the upfront nature of how the Japanese do it in something like Ghost in the Shell... I find to at least be more honest than the insidiousness that's hidden within some of the movies over here. And so I just wanted to get that out of the way because... It's, it's an interesting topic to bring up. Like, I remember there's um a pro, there's a Pro-ZD video, a skit where he makes fun of the whole idea of, like, you know, sexualized characters in anime, stuff like that. Um, and it starts off with just a regular everyday viewer saying like, this show is really good, but this main character's design is really annoying and pervy. And then like a nerd comes in and gives this like really long rant about how it's a reference to the grapes of wrath. And there's like, it's about her personality. Then it cuts to the creator of the show. Like, no, I just wanted tits. I just wanted tits. Yeah. It's, it's a really funny skit. And yeah, you see some things like this where, 
it wants to somewhat desensitize you to the nudity and and have it be a sort of different meaning. Like I said before, if just seeing tits is good enough for you, there's tits in this, but there's a build up to it just being an objectification to a mm. literal sense of this is a machine. And I remember I was telling you just the other week, our friend Will lent me Kill the Kill. And that is a show that go that has a lot of nudity in it. And it seems to want to like drill into your head to desensitize you to all this nudity to where you will have scenes where so many characters are nude together and it's like not a sexual thing at all. It's just part of the themes that the show is building up to. A character that the... She's a major, isn't she? Major Motoko Kusanagi, yes. She reminds me of, and I know you don't have a point of reference, but she reminds me of Ripley from the Alien movie franchise where in the original Alien... I think Ripley was actually written to for a, a male as for an actor for a male, mm-hmm. but then just Sigourney Weaver got cast, and now it is what it is. But if you ever rewatch the, if you ever watch the first Alien movie, Ripley is very much treated like the fact she's a woman is 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 irrelevant, and in a weird way, there's a fucking I don't even know how to describe it. But if you have watched movies. You know this to be true in some facet, which is there's a very, very, very unique difference between how people write male characters and how people write female characters, even if their genders or their sexualities, whatever it is, doesn't factor into the story at all. Still, there's a weird difference of how to write those. So when you find out, like, oh, Ripley may have been written originally for a man, you actually watch it and you can tell. Mm -hmm. But it's played by... A woman. And I got that in terms of just when we aren't doing the she's stripping off her clothes and fighting naked and we're getting, you know, the the kind of shots or when she's actually talking about being a woman, she walks around like how you would write male characters, specifically in this genre where it's like, I was thinking about that when the young guy called her up in when he was in the car park and he was noticing all of these clues and details that possibly something has been infiltrated into their base. And so he calls up... Togusa? Yeah, and he calls yeah. her up and she talks to him like how the male cop lead guy in the story would do. And she just very much functioned like that. And I don't know how to exactly articulate it further, but there's just something about how they flip around her character in such a way it reminded me of Ripley in the Alien movie franchise where there's this supreme competence and confidence that is usually attributed to male characters for whatever reason I'm not saying that's a good thing I'm just saying and I'm not saying that we don't have confident and competent female characters but there's just something about it in this movie that yeah, made me think of Ripley doesn't factor into it really yeah it only factors in in the moments I was talking about before when we're really hitting on the themes but it's almost like the major has two different character types where it's like the real her who's this philosophical one who almost sink herself into the bottom of the sea and the one who's like i'm the action movie lead on the case Hmm. i was about to bring up and you kind of just gave an example you called her the major and i have noticed um uh, i'm a fan of they're not you know, together anymore, but the two best friends or the super best friends, one of them is a really big fan of Ghost in the Shell. And whenever he would bring it up, he would very often just call her the major. And it's like, yeah, this sort of idea of what this character is, you can just give them their rank rather than just saying, oh, Motoko or Kusanagi, but like the major, you know who you're talking about. Yeah. And 
we always bring up Metal Gear and Metal Gear Solid when mm-hmm. we go over to Japan. But hey, did you know that Bato is Solid Snake? <laughs> <laughs> it is cool. Akiyotsuka, it? it's our boy, Paprika. They do that a lot in Metal Gear as well, where you meet most of the characters as their role, whether it is their role in the story or like their job. And then you can see when it cuts away and you see what the real version of them is like. We we get that sometimes with Snake, but mainly in the third game when it's when it's boss and how he eventually becomes big boss. And like that's one of the great things about the third Metal Gear game, Metal Gear Solid 3, is we see a guy become the assigned role in the story that we know him to be in the other games. And it's actually a tragedy. Mm. It's actually really sad. Yeah. Because we got to know him as a person throughout the game instead of just the the snake, snake, snake type character. That's what's really, lo- I think, for myself, that's one of the things I really love about Metal Gear Solid 3 is it does a deconstruction of those character types that those that those series it's, did. It's my favorite for a reason, yeah. And I think Raiden attempted to do that as a character as well. It's like, he is the child soldier, but he's actually like a philosophical little angsty movie buff boy. There's, yeah, well, with Raiden, they're going for a thing of like, oh, we're trying to mold you into the next version of this previous protagonist <laughs> that everyone, including Ryan, loves. But yes. then the plot goes towards, you know, becoming your own thing at the yeah. very end to where he rips off the body tag with the the, the body tag the dog tag with the name that you gave and throws it away it's like no i'm not that and this movie does a similar thing too where it is dictating like the puppet master needs to be this thing and the government and the higher-ups need it to be killed or squashed or put back in the box because it is only this and if it reaches something more what do we do we can't have that. And that's the same with the major. As she goes throughout the story, she becomes more human. She becomes more aware. She becomes more than just the, the woman with the gun who's on the case. And to pair the puppet master and her together in the story and actually have them join together is something that I've taken for granted on previous watches. Because one thing I remember as a negative to Ghost in the Shell. I've always liked it, but the one thing I remember as a negative was, oh, it just ends. Yeah. I always just went, oh, it just ends there? But on this watch, I was like, oh, it ends there. Yeah, I was smiling. I was going, that's my sci-fi. That's what I want from you. Good job. Perfect ending. And I clapped. I was it's like, okay. Yeah. It has a sequel. <laughs> yes, and I actually don't know what the sequel does in relation to that. I know what the TV show does a bit, but uh, I, I don't know what the yeah, sequel I don't does. I think I did read that. I think it's called Innocence. Yes. I think it mentions that she goes back to the police force. And it has and... a dog in it. it has, I, didn't, like, I didn't know that. It has a, a cutesy yeah. dog, which I think we see briefly in this or like a dog similar to it because we do see a couple of animals. Chekhov's dog. (laughs) But I don't know too much. Um, One thing that I was in, this is me going back to weeb mode. One thing that I was interested in coming back to this was I had the thought, who is Motoko Kusanagi's voice actress anyway? Um, And I looked it up and first of all, the only three voice actors I really know are the ones for our three main cops. (laughs) Um, So obviously we have Solid Snake, uh, Akio Otsuka as Bato. Togusa is voiced by Koichi Yamadera, who uh, was Spike Spiegel. Oh, of course. Yeah, and a few other things. Uh, he was in Evangelion 2 as uh, the brown-haired guy. I forget his name. Koji? Yeah. Koji. Ko- yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Kaji in that. 
Um, and Kusanagi, she's a voice actress called Atsuko Tanaka. Mm. Uh, not one of my favorite voice actresses, but every time I see she's in something, it interests me. She tends to play a lot of uh, adult characters, a uh, very cool kind of voice. Uh, there's a sort of professionalism about them, uh, sometimes veering into femme fatale territory. So mm. it's it's a type of voice actress who, if I heard that she was voicing a little girl, I would think, what? That doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, in terms of stuff that you know slash would be aware of through pop culture, she's the Japanese voice of Bayonetta. Yeah, I just saw that. And, and from something you've played, she's the Japanese voice of Kaine in Nier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I only recently, finally for myself, played Nier. Uh, oh, she's in Way of the House Husband as well. That's cool. Yeah. Who was she, who? Well, I mean, I haven't seen much of that, but yeah, like, do you know I'd the character? I'd have to look it up, but I know that I've seen the name. I'm like, I think I know you, but um, she's not the wife. That's the most important thing. No, I know she's, she's not the she's wife. She's not Miku. <laughs> uh, that's the wife's name in that. Uh, Miku. It's, so yeah, it's, it's one of those voices where if I see that she's in something like, okay, that character's going to be pretty well defined. She She's mm. good at playing this kind of adult woman role. Uh, we have many set pieces and action, and obviously there's intrigue, there's a, there's a mystery or something to be chased after in here. And I think the film did a marvelous job of constructing that story where you had enough twists and turns, but when it all came to be what it is, you didn't feel cheated as a viewer. And what I was what I completely forgot about, okay, what I completely forgot about about this film is because I think it's legacy, but also knowing that there's a show and that there's another movie, that this is a franchise in a weird way, is how this is a story inside a living, breathing world that's full of more stories. Sometimes when you watch an anime or even something like, say, Blade Runner, for instance, there's a part of you that admires the world that it takes place in, but you know that this world only exists because this story is being told in it. But here we get glimpses at big political stuff going on, like stuff happening with the corporations and the agencies. Like This almost feels like it's demanding for there to be a show or a series of movies coming from it, but this was just one story we saw inside the world and that's what we got. And obviously there is more, but I, I really, I, that really left my mind until watching it last night. And that was one of the most prevailing things was, oh, they're not going to follow through on that necessarily, but they don't need to. We're just focusing on the major story and the puppet master, but there's this political intrigue happening over here, the corporation. I just really, really felt a lot of awe when it came to Ghost in the Shell from just that angle. I mean, how how did you feel about that? Did that hit you at all? Uh, I usually see that kind of thing as a double-edged sword, especially if I know that this is an adaptation of part of a wider story. Often, I guess maybe I sometimes have the cynical look of like, oh, well, they couldn't have everything in there, so you have these glimpses of things that don't get developed. Um, but certainly, if you look at it in that light, yeah, it does help to make this world feel a bit more lived in, um, even with something that I don't even necessarily think might be followed up in the wider story. Like, we had the, there was the uh, rubbish truck driver mm. who had, we haven't really talked about the plot much, but the big antagonist is this mysterious puppet master that can 
basically hack into people's brains to change their memory and control their bodies if they're cyborgs. Um, and this rubbish truck driver had it happen to them where he thought that he had, it was going through a divorce and that he has a daughter and that he's working himself to the bone just so that he can support her and maybe mm-hmm. try to get back together with the wife and see his daughter again. And the reveal eventually happens that, no, dude, you've been living alone in an apartment for the last 10 years. You don't have a daughter. This is You thought this was a photo of your daughter? This is you walking a dog. Yes, uh, and, a dog, yeah. And it's just, yeah, you you think about what, what what's next for this character because after that reveal, like, you don't see him again. And yeah. It, it felt very heavy, and I think that was one of the most effective mm. uh, bits of contemplation in this film when it comes to you know, transhumanism, what does it mean to be human, what is real? Yeah. As good as all the stuff with Matoko is, like, that one was just really short and simple, better example. And, but that hit her, yeah. because she asks if there's anything they can do for this guy, and Bato, who is grizzled and has a very specific view on the world, he just he just lays it up. Nope, we're not there yet. This guy, you know, we'll fix it up, but there's going to be stuff that's jumbled in there, and yeah, he's screwed up. Yeah. And then he walks away. Then he walks. That's it. That's it. And we don't see that garbage man again. And you do feel for him, but at the same time, in part, you feel for him because this is a story happening in part to our main character as well. Like, this is a dark reflection hmm. of what could happen to our main character, not just because of the puppet master, but because of what she said. Like, Am I even me? They could just remove me and fiddle around with this and fiddle around with that. I don't even know who the original version of myself was. Yeah, she had one of those lines in the in the boat scene, I think. And that's just, oh, what an angle to go with. But And I remember earlier on in the film, it was during one of the long uh, Technobabble expositions. A lot of it did kind of go in one ear out for me. Um, but there was one line that mentioned, like, yeah, with this development, it made a lot of things more convenient. And then... You know, with the antagonistic force of this movie being something that corrupts that, it really builds this, you know, dystopic universe where, you know, we really wanted this thing that only has, you know, these few weaknesses, and the antagonist is one of those weaknesses. The story is good, but I I think what you grapple with more is the philosophies that the characters are putting forth and juggling with. The story for me is a great framework to hang all of the conversations and the world and everything on. And that's why I complimented it before that it's it's really well crafted when it comes to that because I am interested to know what the puppet master is going to do and I am interested to know who they are and where they're from and when they screwed over that garbage truck guy, I was like, oh, they're capable of this type of evil. That's really fucking bad. I can't wait to find out. And then we will then cut away to these politician characters. And I'm like, okay, what have they, what have they got to do with anything? Okay, now they've come into the chief's office and they're having a go at him and they're hacking into stuff. Okay, what's this going to lead to? And it all marries and comes together and just weaves into one big thing, but as you would expect. And when you watch something that has an un, uh, like a, a conspiracy that starts to uh, come apart in front of you or come like you see the full picture of it, there's just a way to do those where you either make the audience disconnect and just look at it and go, okay, I'm sure they'll explain it to me eventually, or you hook them and bring them in. And 
I think because this is such a characterful story, it hooks me in and brings me in, mainly because I'm waiting to see how this affects the mage and how she is going to be challenged by this, rather than actually finding out who the puppet master is and what they want. This isn't, say, um, like, I'm trying to think of an example, um, Cowboy Bebop the movie. Cowboy Bebop the movie has, like, a bad guy in it, and it's like, what's the bad guy's evil plan, and let's see how it unfurls. That movie is a bit like that, and it's like, hey, I like the character of Spike Spiegel, so I can't wait to see how this affects him, but it's it's different, and it's a grabbing of the audience's attention than Ghost in the Shell, which is more about the characters and those themes and ideas. I will say, yeah, I fully agree with that, actually. As much as a lot of the details did kind of go over my head and I was playing a little bit of catch-up, it all did come back to, like, well, what's what's Motoko Kusanagi going to do about this situation? And, yeah, she directly gets involved with the resolution. The antagonist, the puppet master, what did you think of the reveal? of what they are and what they offer up to the film because for a good portion of it, we're led to believe it's a person. It's a person who is the mastermind behind everything, hence puppet master mastermind. Um, Yeah, I I did like that they were basically a puppet that is used to master over things, through things, uh, through uh, cyborgs. Um, it, It did lend itself this weight of how this big built-up thing is actually just a tool of someone else or something else. And it goes into that sci-fi thing, uh, this transhumanism, and what is it to be alive? When we, back in the day, did the film Moon, mm-hmm. there was the robo- there was the AI, Gertie, and that flirted with something very similar where it's a computer program made by the higher-ups to serve this specific function, but it's done it for so long and has done it so well that it's gone a few steps further. And it makes you wonder, is this alive? Is this a being that has more than just following code or orders? And with the Puppet Master, it goes obviously one step further because unlike Gertie in Moon, where their job is to protect a human and look after them. Uh, this is one where this is an invasive program. The government has made this for their own sinister means, but it's taking it a step further. It's taking it a few steps further. This is a program that inhabits beings and controls them and makes them do things. Well, now it has become a thing itself. Yeah. And it wants to inhabit some body, like a body, and control it and do things of its own volition. But when you boil it down to its initial outlook and programming, it is just a logical progression of what it was designed to be. So it makes you step back and go, but is that alive? Is that real? Is that human? Or is this just coding? Is this just a progression of the technology? What is life? What is humanity? What is consciousness and sentience? Mm. And, and it's it doesn't really have that much of a Again, going back to the idea of like, oh, who is the puppet master? What are they like? It doesn't have that strong of a personality. It very much is to the point about a bunch of things. And, you know, it really has this interesting mix of like, well, this is a threatening thing for us, but also it's it's trying to exhibit these human feelings. Uh, did it, it, it was this, 
I might be mixing this up with something else that I've been doing recently. Is, did, was, did, did, did the Puppet Master want to have like offspring or like a legacy or it wanted something like a, that? It wanted a body and it wanted to experience what it is to be. It What it propositioned and they disregard they disregarded this as an act of terrorism early but then it kept coming back to it which is it stated just straight out what it wanted it was hello i want to i'm an i'm an alive program i'm a sentient program who's come to life and i deserve rights and i deserve a a a a shot like everyone else and they disregard that at one point in the movie they say no that was just an act it's actually trying to do these sinister things so it can do something evil and eviler. And, mm. But then when we come back to all of it, after the shootouts and the major has lost these limbs and these people have been blown up and the tank is blown up and now we've got the body again and we've hooked it up. And after all of the shenanigans, that statement was still true. Like It still kept saying that statement, like, I'm alive, I want rights, I want the ability to have a fair shot like everyone else. And unlike the major, it was sure of itself. That's the thing that was interesting. And that's why I like her and it blending together into into one being and sharing something because both of them can teach one another something. Mm. And they both have challenges that help the other one out. And so it's a really neat sci-fi concept as well as a characterful one where the major and the puppet master complement one another, but challenge each other at the same time when it comes to their goal of independence, their goal and their strive to find out if they are worthy of being here or not. And that's kind of more what I got out of the puppet master's deal was it knew exactly what it wanted to be, which is it just wanted to be alive. It no longer wanted to be this nebulous thing in the ether and the clouds and just hacking into... It wanted its own thing. And the major and it just had this flirting relationship throughout it. Every time they talk, there's a temptation factor there, which initially felt like a snake, you know, in the Garden of Eden, tempting our main character to do something bad. But... I didn't really get that sense once we finished the movie. I didn't get the sense like, oh no, our character chose the bad Twilight Zone ending. No, no, not at all. Sorry, I think you solid snake in the Garden of Eden, but no, you, yeah, I see what you mean. The snake, the snake, 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 snake. I want, I want that apple. You said that this didn't work for you entirely. So what were the elements of this that just didn't go over well or just didn't connect? Um... I guess it was a lot of the exposition scenes. They did kind of drag on a little bit, but it wasn't too bad. Okay, so just a bit too dry in technical terms. A little bit, yeah. I mean, you, you know I me, mean? sci-fi is not really my scene. I do enjoy it sometimes, but yeah, a lot of the finer details, sometimes I just kind of want to get it over with. Like what I was saying before, a lot of the quiet scenes in this where we're just looking at the environments and kind of vibing to that. Um, was really what drew me in. After... Like, I think I understand the whole, like, the, the shell is like the body, the mm-hmm. the ghost is the sort of sentience inside the head or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, you got it. And and is that, the, the ghost, is that meant to be someone who exists as personality or is that also an AI? Like, that's kind of where yeah. I kind of falter. Uh, I think that's where they don't know either. Okay, there's, so it was a, a bit of a There's a bit of a questioning of it and... No one can control the ghost. Well, can't we? 
didn't we create the ghost? Like, who <laughs> does that? Uh, it leaves a lot of things up in the air. Uh, you mentioned to me just a bit before recording about the source material. Do you want to go over a bit about how it is different or has a bit of a different uh, feel to it than this film does? Sure. So we were also talking before about how for the longest time, you and I only knew this movie. We didn't know anything about anything else except that they existed. Um, in reading up about this film, so it's based on a manga, which I think started right at the end of the 80s. Um, apparently, this movie in the whole franchise sticks out because it is so uh, you know, philosophical and contemplative mm. and slow-paced. Apparently, the manga itself is a bit more of a cop procedural and there is a bit more of a higher energy, a little bit more of a goofiness and things like that. Um, and apparently that means that a lot of the other things in the ghost and shell franchise, including the 2017 American version is a lot more faithful to that original manga. Uh. And that this thing is a weird standout where it is different, but then there's also this added element of, most of the West is only familiar with this specific version of Ghost in the Shell, and so it kind of contrasts with when they try to expand into the other bits of Ghost in the Shell. Like, I don't know if things that came after this follow this vein a little bit more, mm. um, but I do at least know that the manga and the 2017 film with Scarlett Johansson are a bit more alike. So... I know a bit about the show. It's been pitched as what uh, what if it was CSI but Ghost in the Shell. And the the big thing I know about the sequel and especially the show is Bato is really good in them. Like everyone's like he's the great character of Ghost in the Shell. Like he's the character that if you're into Ghost in the Shell as a whole He's the guy, the guy that everyone loves. He's a really fun, developed, and interesting character. And I guess I have that in my brain as just a part of the pop culture ether. So actually revisiting it last night, just this film on its own, I liked him. He was good. He has a memorable design, a memorable voice. He has counters, counterpoints to offer to our main character. But I didn't find him that different or compelling in comparison to anyone else. I thought he was fine, but I see the perfect groundwork for there to be more with him and more with all of them. And you you said it's a double-edged sword when it comes to things like this, where it's like they're adapting to a part of it and there could be more. And, and I can definitely see that because this, this, because it is different in that way you're saying where this has a bit more of that philosophical edge while the the other stuff from our understanding has a bit more of that cop procedural uh more maybe even a little bit more goofy fun tone to it it does make this an interesting starting point where you could argue it front loads the Ghost in the Shell franchise with all of the big, deep, dramatic stuff. Mm. And then the rest of it can follow on from that, but do so in a way that's less oppressive. Because that was a thing, too. When I finished this last night, I, I, I just had the, the wind taken out of me because it's, it is a very oppressive movie. It's only under, it's like 
just hitting 80 minutes long. Yeah, it's that's, like 81 or yeah, something. Yeah, but that's even before the credits. You know, the credits are long as well. It's not, it's not that, it's a short watch, but it just does have, it has such a demanding tone and way it tells its story that it, it does, if you are looking for a bit more of a light, breezy time, this isn't it. And to give it its comparison to, say, Akira, Akira is oppressive too, but a part of it's because it's so fucking weird. Ghost in the Shell, and maybe now this is me talking because I've watched a few more animes than, say, the normal, normal layman, but Ghost in the Shell isn't that weird. Like, what do you think? I mean, you've experienced a lot of uh, Japanese stuff. You wouldn't think, like, for someone, if, like, Ghost in the Shell is a pretty easy recommend to someone who's never experienced an anime movie, right? When it comes to, you know, being a deep and maybe confusing, this one is pretty standard with it. Like, it explains its concepts, it develops on them. It's not like you have a lot of, you know, trippy dream sequences or anything like that. It's not Paprika. It's not Paprika, which even there it was kind of, like, playing around with it because the characters acknowledge that this is a weird thing happening to them because of you know, the science of the world. Yeah. Um, the one that I recommended before, Serial Experiments Lane, kind of is a bit more weird in that sense because it's about everyone being connected on the internet and there's a bit of, you know, reality perception going on. Um, but no, it it is pretty straightforward with everything. It's just, you know, if you can take in all the information, you can follow it very easily. And it's gorgeous to look at. It's absolutely gorgeous to look Did at. Did you have a favourite sequence? Favorite sequence, I think. I think it's still kind of the same ones that I remembered, like the whole uh, marketplace chase with Bato. Um, yeah, it's still really, really good. Yeah, it's it's always difficult to pick a favorite because they like the big ones are iconic for a reason. But when they do chase that guy down and they get him down into, uh, what would you call that? Like that reservoir area, I guess. Yeah, near the river. And he's trying to fight her, but she's invisible and she's just kicking his ass in the way, like his leg twists. And it's really great. Even even going into the, the little bits of a dialogue he had, which really tied back to the whole theme of identity. Like, what was his thing? He didn't have a ghost or yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah, like, Bato asked him these questions of, like, what kind of answers will I get out of someone who doesn't even know their name or the face of their mother or something like that, and he just becomes sad. And it's like, this character who we followed for a few minutes, didn't know anything about him, but he was like an actiony guy, seemed sure of himself, seemed capable, suddenly now is this, like, little sad <laughs> hunk of a man who... A husk of man, sorry, not hunk of a man. He's a hunky man. <laughs> he's a he's a, <laughs> he's a hunk of meat. He, I don't have a waifu because mine's a husbando. Um, yeah, he's just this little sad husk of a robotic man who it, it just seems defeated because he doesn't have a purpose. It was cool as well that there were characters that didn't have or very minorly had enhancements, and they were looked at as people to envy. That was interesting. Oh, they had a bit of that with Togus, I think. Yeah, the the yeah, because he only had what was it, a little touch up in the brain, and that yeah. was it. I actually thought that he had none at all. So when he called her in the yeah, car that, park, I, yeah, but she said like other than your little touch up in the brain or whatever, that's it. And then the chief hasn't had any. That mm. was the thing that they made a comment about where it's like, and he hasn't had any. And I'm like, it's interesting. I wonder what it's. And this is what I mean where. I was going to say, I wonder what was what it's like for him to work in an industry where everyone has them. That's why that's why you make a show. 
That's why you make another movie. Because this leaves a lot of questions on the table that aren't the type where you say, but the point is, those questions are there. Obviously, like the ending of the movie, you can ask all of these questions of like, what does that mean? That's the point of the movie. It's sitting there challenging you. But something like that was like, I wonder what it's like for the chief to live. That's the type of question where it's like, if you follow that up in a in a in a show or sequel, that's a good type of thing to answer. While something like, you know, the the puppet master stuff, if you if you come back and answer it too much, it can be like, okay, guys. I, it's like it's like what if everyone he worked with has gone through the trauma of like being infected by the puppet master mm. and they're like trying to explain it to him and he's just like, hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. But that is Ghost in the Shell. Great music. We didn't talk about the music too much, but I thought it was really good. I th- mm. That was one of my favorite characters. It really did feel like a character in the movie. It, it, there was times where it, the music almost was making a comment on, in its own way of things in the conversation. It, there was times where the characters were just having a back and forth, and the music would sting in in a way where it all it, it where it came across like the movie was responding to their conversation through that music. It's I love when when a score can do that, where it, it almost comes across like it is a, a thing with a point of view and a, and an opinion of what's happening <laughs> in the story. It really did that well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and the font, iconic. <laughs> the triangle, all of that's iconic. But Ghost in the Shell, I do recommend it. I enjoy it. I think it's a good time. It's big for a reason, but it's a great entryway in for people. And if you're wanting something that has a bit more of a somber tone, a bit more of a slower pace, this is going to hit that sweet spot for you. And if you like your cyberpunk stuff, I mean, come on. This is this is where you go. If you haven't been here already, what are you doing? I do appreciate the retro aesthetic. It reminded me a lot of the Silver Case. It is, what was it, 2029? We're a few years away from the Shell Universe. We'll be there soon. There, there's probably a little boy out there that looks like a small button. He's just <laughs> six years away from being what we see in the film. I like the idea that he was a little boy and then he becomes a big man in six years. <laughs> And then he gets those eyes. It's a hell of a growth spurt. It's a hell of a growth spurt. <laughs> do you recommend Ghost in the Shell? Um, yeah, I was going back and forth on it, but I think I do recommend it, if only just for the vibing experience. It, it is a very well-put-together film. There's plenty of gorgeous things to look at. Um, the characters are really great. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure... It's interesting that we say, like, this is a great entry point. I don't know 100% if it is, but evidently it has worked for a lot of people. You have said you're not a fan of science fiction as much. When it comes to anime, Mm -hmm. what is the genre point that you like in it? What is the thing that it does genre-wise that you tend to gravitate towards? Uh, let me just try to scan in my head sci-fi anime I've seen. I mean, there is, I guess, Serial Experiments Lane, but that one kind of goes into a lot of... Oh, I meant just with anime in general. What's Uh a genre that it does that you like? So you're not so much into, like, sci-fi in general, and this was one where it's, like, very, very sci-fi anime, but with anime in general, like, are you more of a fantasy fan? Are you more of a slice-of-life guy? Are you more of a sports one like i i don't know too much because 
I, I know with our friend Will, he specifically said to us, I love monsters. I like ones with monsters where it's like fantasy, but specifically monster related stuff. And you just said a moment ago, you're not into the big robot things, but you're liking the Gundam anyway. Like what other type of uh, hallmarks or genre stuff that you do like in anime? Uh, I like the dramatic stories. Um, in recent years, liking the, a bit more of the weirder stuff, like the very psychological. Um, a lot of good romances as well, especially longer form ones. Yeah, they, 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 uh, there's a variety there. Um, I guess I go into different moods here and there about what I want. Some really good comedies out there. Yeah, you know, you have recommend, you have you have mentioned a few comedies over yeah, the years. Azumanga Daio, Nichi Joe. There's a lot of good ones. Yeah. What's um? What's a cop one? Like what's a what's what's like a? Oh, well, you said Lupin. You have like your crime caper, over the top silliness. But what are like some cop ones? Because this was also a, a procedural, a cop story. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I know in the '90s there was a big one called "You're Under Arrest," which is about two a buddy cop with two women cops. Oh, okay, I've heard decent things about it, but I don't know too much about it. Um, Does Death Note count? Death Note? Oh, Death Note? Yeah, yeah, I could say Death Note counts, especially in the second half where the main character, like, is the head of the police force. <laughs> um, it, w- one that definitely you will check out at some point, Paranoia Agent follows a couple of cops as well sometimes. It's a very ensemble one, like, different episodes follow different people. Um, there are some cop characters in that, and they do feel a little bit like, you know, some of the Satoshi Kon characters we've seen in films. Even though it's sci-fi, I also am a big fan, not just in anime, but in general. I like your band of misfits like in Cowboy Bebop. I like stories where it's like an ensemble of losers and they're Mm. having to be challenged by whatever the thing is. But I like your found family type stories and yeah, animes. A lot of shonen's going to that. I was gonna say Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, that's they have a lot yeah, of Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z. Enemies now friends, friends, you know, now yeah. partners, Naruto. friends now uncle. Yeah, you know. I haven't seen it at all, but I'm pretty sure that's a big thing in One Piece where it's oh, yeah. you know a band of I pirates would... where everyone's a weirdo. <laughs> where everyone's a weirdo. And uh <laughs> that is all we have to say about Ghost in the Shell. Now the next episode is a recommendation from the listening people out there and i thought i'm looking at this list we have a few things there and i think it's time to cover something a bit more recent something a bit modern perhaps mm-hmm. with a a whole slew of celebrity actors do you know what i'm gonna say uh oh is it the that dicaprio film yes don't look up don't look up Which okay i think is not I can't recollect. I don't think that's a Judd Apatow movie, but it's one of his cohorts. I think it's like Adam McKay or one of those guys. One of the guys, Adam McKay, he directed the Austin Powers movies, I'm pretty sure. And then he's gone on to do stuff like The Big Short and things okay, and so- Vice. And I think he did Don't Look Up, but he kind of is in that stable of people when you think of Judd Apatow and his group, like that era of comedy. I think he gets bungled in there but we'll don't we'll do don't look up which is yes adam mckay i was right and it is on netflix it is a netflix film so make sure to give that a watch in the meantime and come back next episode to hear our scathing hot takes on this movie because the one thing i know about don't look up is 
it was a very divisive film. Some people said it was great and masterful and really great social commentary, and some people said it was the dumbest, stupidest thing they've ever seen in their life. I've never, I have not heard the opinion on anyone who sat in the middle on this. It was very one way or the other. Yeah, I remember when I brought it up to you, I hadn't heard of it at all, but you were like, oh God, that film's like, you've clearly heard some things about it. And from its marketing, it also looks like a nightmare, but it has Tyler Perry in it. So we're going to watch it. Don't look up. You just brought up Judd Uptown, reminded me of the question we asked earlier of like, I'm pretty sure we've done something he's done. I'm looking at the filmography and it's just things that he's produced, not directed. You mentioned uh, Zohan before. He's uh, the writer of that. I mentioned that before we recorded. We were talking about Don't Mess With Zohan. But thank you all so much for listening and tuning in. You can find us on your social medias of Facebook and Twitter. They're yours now. You bought them and now you must own them uh, under Spit and Polish Presents. And we can be emailed over at spitandpolished at gmail.com. Send us your recommendations for movies and let us know your opinions on the things that we have discussed here today. Are you a fan of Ghost in the Shell? Uh, have you seen it? Are you familiar with the original manga or the TV show or sequel? Have you watched any of those 3D animated versions of Ghost in the Shell that are out there and available that I've heard very mixed things about. I, I In the Ben at the Sage video that I mentioned before, he straight up says, don't check out the 2.0, check out the original. <laughs> check out the original. Oh, I was talking about like, there's like a Netflix Ghost in the Shell series that came out like a couple of years ago. It's like a 3D animated and mm. people love or hate it. Again, don't know. I'm not that big of a weeb. Until next time, listening people, remember to be kind to each other or else I'll possess you with my puppeting skills. Ooh. Ooh it's an artisan and a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, we've pr- we've done four Judd Apatow produced films on the podcast, but none of his directed stuff. A true shame. Heavyweights, The Cable Guy, Drillbit Taylor, and Year One. <laughs>